It is such a blessing to be able to assemble today. I'd like to express appreciation to our eldership. Certainly the lesson Brother Jonathan brought last Sunday morning in my absence with my voice issues on that occasion. Very powerful, very timely, very needed lesson. The book of Jonah, of course, has so many things to even teach us by principle even to this very day today. You may notice on the wall to my left, the title of the lesson today takes us to the Rubicon River in northern Italy. And we're going to, at least for the next moment, we're going to discuss about crossing that river. I'd like to, in fact, set up that lesson by highlighting what the significance historically of that statement is and why I chose that for the title. The scene is like this one. Go in your mind back to the days of the ancient Roman Empire. It was true that there was a young general named Julius Caesar. The year was 59 B.C., and on that occasion, as he was given the opportunity to govern a section of that empire, he did so masterfully. He was a very apt orator. He could speak very eloquently and very well. And not only that, he was a military genius. And so it wasn't but a very few years later, he already enjoyed tremendous success. And the main government in the capital city recognized he was a threat. And so they gave the following order. They commanded him to give up his troops and to stop because, you see, they perceived he would, if he kept in this way of popularity, that he soon would be a threat to the emperor himself. There was a law on the books at that time in the ancient Roman Empire that any general, any general that crosses the Rubicon River headed toward Rome, doing so against the wishes and the commands of the Roman Senate is guilty of treason. And so at this point, Caesar had a choice to make. It was in January of 49 B.C. He and his troops stood on the verge of the Rubicon River. We can turn around here and stop and all shall go well with us, but if we cross that river, we shall be judged as traitors and we will plunge the empire into civil war. He and his troops crossed that river. Not many years later, due to the success he enjoyed, Caesar, in fact, became, or Julius Caesar became the emperor. And you and I today, of course, appreciate that a pivotal factor occurred when he crossed that river. In the years since then, that statement has come to mean the following. Any time in a person's life that he or she comes to a pivotal decision, a decision such that there's no turning back, once you make a particular decision and things proceed along that course, things can never, ever be the same again as they were before. That's what happened to Julius Caesar, wasn't it? When he crossed the Rubicon River, the Roman Senate judged him at that point as traitor and he set in motion a series of events that would culminate in the Civil War. He ultimately would win that and rise to the emperor of the empire. At the bottom of that slide, though, you'll notice this. There's several times in a person's life when the die might be cast, when there might be a circumstance that becomes a point of no return, when there becomes, if you will, something that's done that inevitably commits one to a certain course of action. Today, may I say, the Bible identifies there are several moments in a person's existence in which he or she will cross the Rubicon. 
Let's study about them this morning. Because obviously for all of us, we need to be keenly aware of what those are because once we cross it, we can never, ever go back. Things will never, ever be the same. Five of them we'll talk about briefly, and let's look at the first one. May I say to you, consider with me for a moment what takes place at the point of conception. When a man and a woman come together, when the egg and the sperm, if you please, come together in that process that you and I understand biologically, something fundamental and extraordinarily marvelous takes place. Look at some of these verses with me. For you see, before the moment of conception, there's no life. But according to Isaiah 49, verse number 1, we realize at that moment of conception, something amazing takes place. Now there is life. Didn't God tell the prophet Isaiah, In the womb I knew thee, and I called thee from that location. And so we notice that at that moment of conception, here a life has begun in the womb of that woman. We realize approximately nine months later that, of course, she will give birth. But notice, there's already life in her womb. Isn't it marvelous then to notice that at that moment of conception, a human spirit has now been given its existence. An immortal spirit. A spirit that now, once that existence has begun, God having bequeathed its origin and, origin and generation, it will never, ever cease to be. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse number 1, in the ancient days of the Old Testament, that prophet Zechariah so powerfully asserted as he spoke the very words of God. Isn't it true as it is stated there that God formeth the spirit of man within him? That formation occurs at the moment of conception. As each of us are well aware, and as you'll notice on that slide, so many Bible verses lead us to appreciate the power and the marvelous wonder of that truth. You and I know politically that there's much discussion and even in the mind of some controversy about when does life begin. May I say, if biblically, there's no reason to question or doubt it. Life begins at the point of conception. You'll notice as you consider at the bottom, a fascinating thing about that is then this. At the moment that that conception occurs, again, God has formed a spirit, and that spirit will never cease to exist. Do you notice then how, it, in essence, at that moment, a Rubicon has been crossed? That little life that has begun to form in the womb of that mother, again, for a few months, it'll live in that location, then be born, and of course, here upon earth. And then some number of years later, it'll die, but it'll never cease to be. It'll simply proceed to live elsewhere from that point on. Isn't it fascinating to notice in Exodus 3, verses 14 and following, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were three great patriarchs who by that point had been dead 500 years or more. And yet God says they're still alive. They were still in existence. May you and I notice then that of course this paints a dramatic picture as to why abortion is so wrong. Here's a life that's been formed in the life of a woman. And now we're going to purposefully and with premeditation in that life it's simply murder. 
And the Bible, in fact, describes it as such. As you reflect upon those thoughts with me, notice a few of those statements at the bottom. They're almost chilling in the power of them. In Jeremiah 1, verse number 5, when God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah, He very powerfully asserted to him, I formed thee in the womb. I called you to be a prophet. So here was a baby in the womb of Jeremiah's mother. And yet on that occasion, and at that time, God had already called him to be a prophet to the people of God. What is it then that's being done when little babies are murdered today? What special things might that child have accomplished? What great things for the human society might that adult have accomplished? We'll never know. It's a tragedy, though, to consider it, isn't it? You might also appreciate with me in Matthew 15, verse 19, as Jesus there made the statement, as He listed several activities and things that were evil, He included murder in the list. And later on in Romans 1, 29, the same thing is stated again that these individuals who have behaved and acted in a way that's displeasing to God, among those sins is murder. It's still true, isn't it, that God told ancient Israel, Thou shalt not commit murder. As you and I close that slide, may I point out then how that this principle of crossing the Rubicon in this, in this sense reminds all of us as parents, as those who are influential, that we make sure to instill in our own hearts when life begins. And we help make sure our youngsters understand it too. So that when they're teenagers or even beyond, they'll not make a foolish decision and may lead, of course, to something in which a Rubicon has been crossed. And a life, of course, has to take on a tenor or shape that they never thought it would need to do. At that point, what about another Rubicon? This isn't the only one. How about if we consider this one? Have you ever considered obedience to the gospel? It is a vital part of every gospel sermon. It is a matter that in fact is resting before us always when we open the pages of the book of God. His sweet invitation to one and all to come. But have you ever thought that in the obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ there is the crossing of the Rubicon? Let's see how that occurs. At the top of that slide, you might notice, isn't it true that we serve a God who, in mercy and in love, wishes for everybody to be saved? Oh, it's true that He sent His Son to die on the cross, and that blood of that Son can offer the opportunity of salvation to one and all. In 1 Timothy 2, verse number 4, we read that God would have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. And later in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's true then, isn't it, that God would wish all to be saved. But the tragedy, of course, is that many will not accept the terms of that offer of salvation. Because that salvation is predicated upon the response in faithful obedience to that which God has proclaimed. It is in that regard I would call to your attention, Mark 16. Isn't it true that here Jesus, with a loving and tender hand of exhortation, told His apostles, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
Now, Jesus at that point didn't say, all of them to whom you preach will be saved. He said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. They have to make a response. And in so doing, upon that faithful, obedient response, then and only then will the blessed opportunity of salvation be theirs. As you keep that thought in mind, though, look further. Can we not make this observation? Before one obeys the gospel, in that attribute of faithful baptism, a person is lost in sin. He or she is overwhelmed, if you please, in that which has separated him or her from God. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So might we observe that that which causes a person to be lost is sin. And yet, before baptism, one's in sin, engulfed in it, overwhelmed in it, covered by it. However, when one is baptized scripturally, one then appreciates those sins are washed away. All the blackness and all the darkness and all the evil that was associated with them by way of guilt has been removed, every bit of it. That leads me to ask you to note this. A person is cleansed in that act of obedience. Cleansed by the blood of Christ. Revelation 1 verse 5, washed from our sins in the blood of the Lamb. But may I say, according to the Bible, the Rubicon was crossed. Because have you ever thought about this? Look with me at 2 Peter chapter 2 for a moment. 2 Peter 2 beginning in verse 20. There's a statement therein made about those who once were cleansed, once had been washed, once had been members of the body of Christ, if you please, but now they weren't. The words, in fact, are rather chilling. Let me read them beginning in verse 20 of 2 Peter chapter 2. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world... Through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the first. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. We can't mistake it and we can't miss it. Here's a person who has made the decision and the choice to faithfully obey the gospel and in so doing has become a member of the body of Christ. At some future time, that person begins to live in foolishness, to again live in sin, to go back into the old ways of life, this way of separation from God. And the inspired prophet said, the latter end is worse than the start. He can never go back. It would have been better, the inspired writer says, if he had never obeyed the gospel than in the shape he's now in. What do you think about that? He crossed the Rubicon. When you obey the gospel, when you've accepted the sweet offering of the blood of Jesus Christ and the wonderful association with God that it makes possible to turn your back on it and go back into the world of, as a child of the devil... God will judge you more harshly than He would have if you had never obeyed the gospel. 
That's what the Bible teaches. Crossing the Rubicon is serious business. Whether it be in that matter of conception or whether it be in the issue of obeying the gospel, it's a wonderful thing when a person makes that choice and decision, I want to become a Christian. But it's important for us to realize that confession that's made right before that event. I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That confession requires everything that you have to give. Every action, every thought, every deed of life must now be under the control of the blood of Jesus Christ and that which He teaches. What about point number three? Is there any other Rubicons in the Bible? There are. How about marriage? Isn't it a sweet thing to consider the blessing and the honor that comes in marriage? Surely as the Bible lifts it up. You and I can remember in Genesis chapter 2 that lovely description of where the man was alone, but yet God fashioned a woman, brought her to him, and of course that marriage took place. You'll notice later in Proverbs 18, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing. Later, Jesus graced the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee by being present. And so here, the Son of God gave His endorsement, His approval to that which was occurring that day. One by one, as you think about all those examples, it's still a marvelous truth, isn't it, that when Jesus gave His discussion about this point, He said, "...what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder." Matthew 19, 6. May I ask you to reflect, though, on the crossing of the Rubicon that happens in light of marriage. About the middle of that slide, we can consider it like this. A young man and a young woman begin to date and they come to know one another. And during that period of association, their feelings grow stronger and stronger. And the time comes that he says, will you marry me and will you be my wife? Now may I ask, even if she says yes, they are not married at that point. Perhaps a few weeks or a few months passes, plans are made for a wedding ceremony. Even at the time that ceremony begins, they still aren't married. He comes to that a groom and no more. She comes to the events of that day a bride and no more. She's not yet his wife, he's not yet her husband. As the, officiant, as the officiant proceeds through the ceremony, a number of things are discussed and perhaps biblical truths are presented. They still aren't married. Finally, the time comes that they exchange I do's. And then he says, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Now they're married. He has obligations that he didn't have before. He came to that ceremony just a groom, a man, if you please. Now he's a husband. And all the truths of the Bible, descriptive of husbands, now he is obliged by God to satisfy. I've listed some of them on the slide for you. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands love your wives. He didn't say men love your wives. He said husbands love your wives. In 1 Timothy 5, 8, that husband is given responsibility, of course, for providing for the family. He didn't have that before that service started because he wasn't a husband. 
in 1 Peter 3, 7, with regard to that wife, he is now commanded by God to dwell with her according to knowledge and according to understanding. Honoring her as the weaker vessel. That obligation wasn't his before that service began. By the same token, the wife has obligations as that service has ended that she didn't have before. She is expressly told to obey your husband, to submit to him. She didn't have a husband before the service started. Now she does. And therefore, she must appreciate that she and he alike have both crossed the Rubicon and there's no going back. You might appreciate some additional thoughts relative to her. She's told to guide the house. Now, she didn't have that responsibility before that started, but now she does. As you think about the crossing of the Rubicon in this sense, in fact, the Word of God highlights it from an even different perspective. Because now, in light of the seriousness of what took place that day, the two of them came to the ceremony as just a man and a woman, but now they leave husband and wife obligations one to the other, and not only that, each with individual obligations to God relative to what takes place in that marriage. They've crossed the Rubicon. That's another way of helping us understand why you can't just set aside marriages. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. In fact, so strong is that appreciation that God simply says, unless it's because of fornication, neither one of these can ever, ever marry again on this earth. Now that's strong language. Do you sense they've crossed the Rubicon? That's why in light of that, we have to be so cautious and so concerned in our effort to make sure that we, as well as the generation following, understands the seriousness of marriage it's never entered lightly. It's never entered failing to understand that once you cross that Rubicon, there's no going back. You may notice as you come to the close of that slide, that's how that you and I can appreciate then Romans 7 verse 2, in which the Apostle Paul wrote it, asserting that if a person be married to someone other than their spouse, then they're an adulterer until that person dies. It's an interesting thing then to notice that Julius Caesar made the decision to cross the Rubicon. He full well knew what it meant. And so when you and I appreciate that when a man and woman enter marriage, they too must be apprised of that truth. What about point number four? What about another Rubicon? I'm sure we each were expecting this one at some point. What about the moment of death? You and I as that point of conception brings life. And then, of course, the time comes we're born into this world, and for some number of years we enjoy the things that this earth has to offer. We enjoy the friendships and marriage, and we enjoy perhaps career and profession and otherwise, and we're even thankful for the blessing of the church and for all the wonderful things that God does for us every day. But it is a certain truth, isn't it, that if the Lord delays His coming... Death will be ours. There's no avoiding it. There's no way to evade it. Death is a certain appointment. In Hebrews 9, 27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. But it would seem to me 
at least for this lesson, that it would be useful to consider. Think about the crossing of the Rubicon that happens at the time of death. I've tried to, in fact, state it like this. As we noted earlier, once that immortal spirit begins at the point of conception, that life will forever be. We understand that that soul, because God is a spirit, and spirits don't ever die. You'll notice then that once God provides that spirit at the point of conception, that spirit will always live. So the time will come when that spirit won't dwell inside a fleshly tabernacle anymore. You and I call that death. In James chapter 2, verse 26, For the body without the spirit is dead. You and I, as we have attended funerals and we have been present on those occasions, we appreciate there's a body there, but the fact the spirit is gone, and hence the body is said to be dead. The spirit's still alive somewhere else. As the New Testament teaches, it's still alive and well in a realm known as Hades. But might we never forget that the point of death, the Rubicon was crossed. Whatever spiritual state that I was in at the time I die, the Bible gives no hint that can ever be changed. No hint that there's ever an opportunity to again make things right if they weren't before. And oh, how critical then it is to live with wisdom because if I cross the Rubicon at the point of death and I'm lost, that's the way it'll be for eternity. That's a serious and tragic consideration, isn't it? Doesn't it highlight for you and me the fact that again the text said, after this, the judgment. There's not the slightest indication that there will be any opportunity afforded for anybody to change the state. In fact, the rich man in Lazarus points exactly the opposite. Here, two individuals in that description of Luke 16, verses 19 and following, they pass away, and one of them lifted up his eyes in torment. He knew exactly he wasn't where he wanted to be. And yet, as he lifted up his eyes there, he pleaded at one point, Sin, one, that he might dip his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. And yet, Father Abraham said, There's a great gulf fixed between us. Those that would pass to here cannot, and those that would come from here to you are not allowed. There's a Rubicon that's crossed at the time of death. It's serious to make sure we die in the Lord. I would hope all of us then this morning would consider this. Are you living faithfully? Am I? Because Jesus Christ came in all seriousness to teach us about the fact that at the time of death, the Rubicon is crossed. I realize as you look near the bottom of that slide, there are religious organizations today who teach that it's entirely possible for a person to be baptized for someone that died years ago. There's no truth in that. There's no truth at all in that. There's not one thing that you and I can do along that line. We can't be baptized for somebody else. We can't pray for anybody else. We can't give for them. May I encourage you to notice the words of 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. 
Notice it's His body. And so it is that as that Rubicon is crossed, in that consideration of death, it perhaps points us to yet another one that's associated with it, the eternal judgment. For you see, that same passage we had noted earlier, as is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. When that sentence of judgment is presented, there will come a moment when, of course, you and I and all who have ever lived will stand in that presence of that great Son of God. Think about the majesty of that moment. Think about the greatness of that event. Every human being who has ever lived is going to be present for the moment of judgment. The books will be opened according to Revelation 20 verse 11 and they will be judged out of the things written in those books according to the deeds done in their body. And so it shall be that certainly a great sentence will be levied. You can imagine as the master looks into that book of life and sees a person's name there, how excited it'll be when Jesus then says, Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. It would seem to me nearly impossible to contain the excitement that that one would feel. To know that all the labors and the endeavors and the efforts of this life and all the persecution and affliction experienced will have been worth it. And that one will now be in the sweet and friendly confines of heaven forevermore. But on the other side of that coin, as that same book is opened and Another person in being ready for judgment, and that person's name is not in the book. That person's name is not in the book. And perhaps you can almost imagine the person pleading, Would you please look again? Surely it's there. It's not there. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And so off into the place, prepared for the devil and his angels, that one will go. And the Rubicon is crossed again. Never a way out. Never a way to change it. To be beaten with many stripes throughout all eternity. To suffer the unending fires of an eternal hell due to the person's disobedience. It's a frightful scene. But to cross the Rubicon is serious business. The lesson is yours this morning. We've looked at five avenues of crossing the Rubicon and although that phrase takes us back to the days of Julius Caesar and his crossing of that Rubicon centuries ago. The Word of God has pointed out to us that there are several avenues in your existence and mine in which the Rubicon is crossed. The moment of conception, obedience to the gospel, marriage, death, eternal judgment. It might be that there's one or more in this audience today who realizes that you're standing on the precipice of the Rubicon and you're about to make a monumentally eternal decision. Won't you make it wisely? Won't you make it with care? And won't you make it in light of the instruction of the Word of God? It may be that at some point in the past you've already crossed the Rubicon, but you haven't understood the thoroughness of what that meant. If you need to make amends in your life today and come back to the God that loves you, we'd be delighted to pray to God for you and we would exhort and encourage you to come. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing this hymn of encouragement. If you would wish this very day to cross that Rubicon in a sweet way, 
as you prepare for baptism, we'd be honored to help you. The obedience to the gospel is the best decision that you can ever make. Always stay true to God. If you have obeyed it at some point in the past, but you haven't been faithful, why not come back to Him today? If we could assist you in so doing, we'd be honored to do that, and we would encourage and invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.